Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical malpractice and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Back alley doctors have had a long history in the United States. Most commonly known for administering abortions before the 1970s, these physicians often hide their questionable credentials. What's more, they operate secretly, sometimes in shoddy offices to evade legal watchdogs. The dangers are obvious, and the resulting deaths of thousands remind us that when it comes to healthcare, legitimacy matters. Without it, people might turn to these unqualified back-alley types who turn a profit on human desperation. Dr. Anthony Pignataro's patients didn't know it, but that's exactly the kind of practitioner they were dealing with, only they weren't terminating pregnancies. Enticed by his flashy ads and talk show boasts, countless women trusted him for plastic surgery. Instead... They became victims of a man who'd never own up to the risks of his scheme, even as he tried to pry open an airway with a coat hanger. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath it boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm very happy to join Alastair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. Anthony Pignataro, a doctor who worked very hard to be liked, rich, and stay out of jail. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Dr. Anthony Pignataro, a physician whose negligence contributed to multiple deaths throughout his career. Last week, we explored Anthony's tumultuous journey to becoming a doctor, his forgery tactics, and his first surgeries gone wrong. This week, we'll delve into the homicide case that brought police banging on Anthony's door. We'll also track the shocking investigation, criminal sentencing, and his murderous attempted revenge. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Prestige, profit, and a private practice. Those were the three things 39-year-old Anthony Pignataro wanted most. And by the summer of 1997, he seemed to have them all. He appeared on television for his snap-on toupee. He drove a shiny red Lamborghini and, thanks to his wide-scale ads, he was reeling in new clients. But beneath the facade of his success as a doctor, Anthony Pignataro was a fraud. Unable to complete a medical residency, he couldn't take the board exam for his ear, nose and throat specialty. But that didn't stop him from forging a residency diploma to get certified in plastic surgery in 1995 and starting to operate on oblivious patients. Two years later, the cracks in Anthony's scheme were beginning to show. For one thing, Anthony's private practice lacked a proper staff. While he may have enjoyed a luxury sports car, he felt that trained nurses and anesthesiologists were a needless expense. So for each procedure, he only had three possible assistants. A 22-year-old licensed practical nurse who had barely any experience, his wife who had no formal training but had worked clerically at a pharmacy and various doctor's offices in the past, and a 17-year-old high school student who was interested in becoming a doctor. Medical assistants are critical to the best outcomes of any surgery, and Anthony selected his from the bottom of the barrel. Surgical assistants are registered nurses and physicians, and this is a requirement from any licensed facility. Minor mistakes in a surgery can cost the patient their life and the doctor their license. By saving a few bucks in hiring this inept trio, Anthony was a cliché of being penny-wise and pound-foolish. Still, it's hard to say whether Anthony would have actually benefited from qualified help. His inflated ego made him a hard person to advise. In Anthony's mind, he knew the best course of action for any given scenario. But in August 1997, that proved false. In our last episode, we talked about Terry Lamarty, the 39-year-old woman who underwent liposuction in Anthony's makeshift basement surgery center. Bleeding from an unclosed incision afterwards, Terry checked herself into another hospital where an emergency operation corrected Anthony's life-threatening mistakes. She'd caught the injuries just in time. Anthony was aware, and he was angry. He confronted Terry, telling her she was wrong to seek medical assistance, and he saw firsthand the damage he'd done. But not even then did Anthony think to stop practicing or take some time to improve on his technique. Instead, he booked more clients. Among them was 26-year-old 
Sarah Smith. A former high school cheerleader who now relished home projects, Sarah had married her high school sweetheart and had two kids under the age of 10. Together, the four of them seemed happy. However, like anyone, Sarah faced her fair share of insecurities. Earlier that year, she'd undergone a nose job to correct her deviated septum and get rid of a bump on her nose. Perhaps the experience had left her feeling confident about the safety of plastic surgery. Now she wanted to increase her bust size. She just had to find a procedure that came in at the right cost. You see, a deviated septum repair is typically covered by American health insurance. It treats sinus issues or sleep apnea. But purely cosmetic procedures like breast augmentation are often uninsured. So when Sarah came across Dr. Anthony Pignataro, she may have been enticed by his prices. Notorious for his bargain deals, Anthony advertised his services for significantly less than the leading doctors. But there was a reason for that. Anthony didn't operate at a hospital, nixing those fees altogether. And then there were those other places he cut corners, keeping a near non-existent staff and going without essential medical equipment. These oversights were glaring, but Anthony never disclosed them. So Sarah had no reason to think Anthony wouldn't have the appropriate staff, equipment, and support for the surgery. She believed he was the real deal when she sat with him for a consultation. At this consultation, Dr. Anthony proposed a relatively new type of enlargement procedure known as a transumbilical breast augmentation, tuba for short. Anthony had just learned it that summer. For a woman considering breast augmentation, the scarring is always a major concern. In 1991, Dr. Gerald Johnson in Houston, Texas, performed the first transumbilical breast augmentation. The incision was made in the belly button and the deflated implant was threaded through a tunnel under the skin through the abdomen all the way to the breast area and then inflated. This invisible scar technique was a new procedure when Anthony literally took a stab at it and it required a very skilled surgeon and support team. Anthony, apparently, had no qualms about trying a cutting-edge procedure. The businessman he was, Anthony claimed he'd gotten it down so well, he planned to hike up the cost of the operation soon. Sarah had come at the right time. Trusting her luck, Sarah booked the surgery and underwent a single preliminary examination. As author Anne Rule explains in her book, Last Dance, Last Chance, Anthony didn't think she needed x-rays or an EKG because she was under 40. Pre-surgical screenings for any surgery requiring general anesthesia require a basic evaluation of the patient's heart and lungs. This is because the very medications that allow us to sleep through these procedures also can affect the heart's rhythm and an EKG can identify these. A chest x-ray is also required since subclinical pneumonias and rare tumors can easily be caught by these imaging studies. Sarah's age didn't change the fact that her surgery was complicated, and Anthony's failure to adequately screen his patient was negligent. According to his records, Anthony did take blood tests, which came back fine. Sarah was in the clear. 
On the morning of Monday, August 25, 1997, Sarah's husband, Dan, drove her to Anthony Pignataro's office for her 9.30 a.m. appointment. Almost immediately, she was taken to a back room and given a variety of pills meant to relax her. Then, she returned to the waiting room. Dan thought that was surprising. The medication had clearly affected his wife, and she was only growing drowsier by the minute. But what happened next rang even stranger. As his wife was led behind a closed door, Anthony insisted Dan leave. Multiple times, Anthony returned and repeated himself, urging Dan to go run some errands and come back in the afternoon when the procedure was done. Notably, Anthony didn't supply an exact time. It seems not even he knew how long the surgery would take. Finally, Dan headed out. He'd return to pick Sarah up whenever it was all over. Until then, he trusted that his wife was in good hands. But the basement surgery of the dingy West Seneca practice told a different story. Anthony didn't have a heart monitor. The only machines he set up to track Sarah's oxygen levels were a pulse oximeter, which went on her finger, and a blood pressure cuff. Crucially, there weren't any devices to keep her airway open and deliver oxygen during the procedure. Anesthetics administered improperly can slow or stop breathing, leading to death. So it's imperative that the medical team closely monitors and assists a patient's respiration when they've been anesthetized. Dr. Anthony Pignataro should have known this. But later in the morning on August 25th, he began the procedure without these safeguards. His concoction of drugs had put Sarah to sleep and he hoped she'd stay that way for the next few hours while he operated. But it soon seemed that Sarah was more than just dozing. During that first hour, Sarah's face began to lose color. Noting this, Debbie Pignataro, who'd been called on as one of the assistants that day, made a comment to her husband. But Anthony was focused. He didn't bother to look up at his patient's face as he made an incision at her belly button. Minutes later, he moved a tube-like device into it to create a pathway to her breast. By now, Sarah's face looked even grayer. Debbie tried to alert her husband again. It was no use. The pulse oximeter rang out in alarm. The oxygen levels in Sarah's blood were too low. According to statements made by the 22-year-old licensed practical nurse, Anthony demanded that she hook Sarah up to their EKG. It showed a flat line. There was no question about it. Sarah Smith was in a state of cardiac and respiratory arrest, with a doctor who had no crash cart, no intubation kit, and not a single registered professional around him. Anthony told his teenage intern to call 911. It was a last resort, but Sarah's time was running out. Coming up, Sarah's emergency raises questions from authorities. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The morning of August 25th, 1997, had taken a turn for the worst. 39-year-old Dr. Anthony Pignataro's patient, Sarah Smith, wasn't breathing due to the doctor's negligence. Where any legitimate operating room would have accounted for possible complications, Anthony lacked the necessary tools to save her life. He needed an anesthesiologist and a way to get an endotracheal tube into Sarah's airway so he could force oxygen into her lungs. Without those resources, the situation had turned dire. Anthony's intern called 911 and within five minutes, sirens roared in the parking lot outside the West Seneca practice. When emergency teams entered the basement surgery, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Anthony Pignataro was attempting to create an airway by sticking a yellow coat hanger down Sarah's throat. Anthony was terrified and reflexively tried to keep Sarah's airway open in a bizarre and dangerous way, having no emergency airway precautions or equipment, let alone a competent staff, he somehow chose a wire coat hanger. Even if he did successfully create an open-air passage, he had nothing available to deliver the needed oxygen to her brain. We all know, except obviously Anthony, how sticking a coat hanger either into a uterus for an abortion or an airway to keep someone breathing is life-threatening and just plain stupid. Intercepted by paramedics, Anthony resorted to yelling directions at them. He screamed, we can't lose this one. Even in a state of utter panic, Anthony couldn't pass up a chance to enforce his superiority over others. Medics delivered CPR and shocked Sarah's heart into beating before sending her off to a hospital. But it was far from the end of this tumultuous day. By the time she was loaded into the ambulance, she'd already suffered 19 or 20 minutes without oxygen. It would be a miracle if she emerged without serious brain trauma. In the emergency room later that day, Sarah Smith slipped into a coma. Hours later, at 2.30 p.m., Sarah's husband Dan had yet to learn any of this as he pulled into the parking lot of Anthony's private practice. When he entered the office, 
Dan was surprised to find Debbie Pignataro waiting for him. It was on her to break the news. And naturally, Dan didn't receive it well. When he got to the hospital, he saw the mother of his children lying comatose in bed, a grim feeling taking hold. As Dan grappled with the bomb that had been dropped on his life, the rescue team reached out to the West Seneca Police Department. Anthony's basement surgery center had struck them as ill-equipped, and he hadn't had the right tools for the procedure he was doing. It certainly raised questions about his fitness as a doctor. But Anthony didn't seem to think so. Following the tragedy, Anthony kicked into overdrive booking surgeries, afraid his license would soon be revoked. He ignored the dangers of his glaring lack of safety precautions, hoping to turn a profit while he still could. On August 29, 1997, he faced his first brush with the reality of the situation. Two officers knocked on the door of his practice. They wanted his official account of events. Before he obliged them, Anthony emphasized that his attorney had advised him not to talk to anyone. Lucky for them, he'd give them the scoop. It was a classic attempt to make them feel trusted and special, to convince them he was a good guy. But when it came to the actual story, Anthony kept it vague. He said he'd sedated Sarah Smith with a local anesthetic and something that would make her drift in and out of consciousness before he started the surgery and got concerned when the pulse oximeter rang out. Perhaps she'd taken something else before coming to his office, but he didn't know about that. It didn't feel like a full report. Police had questions, but unfortunately, they couldn't get another word in. Anthony stood and excused himself, telling them he had to tend to a patient. It may have been an excuse, but they couldn't argue. They'd have to piece what happened together with evidence and statements they didn't have yet. But help was on its way. Because on Monday, September 1st, 1997, Dan decided to pull the plug on his wife. Told Sarah would be a vegetable for the rest of her life, he felt it was what she would want. 26-year-old Sarah Smith was gone. And her case might just be a homicide, escalating it from a local police investigation to a matter for the district attorney's office. Pat Finity and Chuck Craven were pulled on as lead detectives for the DA. And they didn't waste time locating the eyewitnesses. First, the doctor's wife. Torn up, 39-year-old Debbie Pignataro described her struggle trying to get through to her husband that morning as Sarah's face turned grey. And the teen intern explained that he was basically just a gopher for Anthony, never actually entrusted to deliver care. That was all helpful. Though what propelled the investigation most were the statements from the 22-year-old nurse who had been at the scene. While Pat and Chuck noted that she seemed a bit dim, unable to recall medical terms like scalpel and ambubag, she provided important details. On the day of Sarah's surgery, Dr. Anthony Pignataro had given Sarah 20 milligrams of Valium, then directed his nurse to administer six cubic centimeters of sodium pentothal and three cubic centimeters of the narcotic Versed. 
Combining central nervous system depressants is always potentially dangerous. Valium is used for anxiety, sodium pentothal is a quick-acting hypnotic, and Versed acts as a sedative. Using these three together, supervised by a trained doctor, is potentially safe, but lethal in the hands of someone like Anthony. But it was what Anthony did next that brought trouble. Before the surgery began, Anthony directed his nurse to administer a second dose of sodium pentothal through the port. Minutes later, as he made an incision, Sarah said, Ouch. So Anthony told his nurse to give a third dose of sodium pentothal. Even to Pat and Chuck, who weren't well-versed in medicine, that seemed like a high amount of substances, especially given Sarah's petite body. A few weeks later, Sarah Smith's toxicology report came back. It further confirmed their suspicions. An excessive amount of sodium pentothal and other substances had caused asphyxiation. Sarah's death was the direct result of the drugs that Anthony Pignataro had mandated during his procedure, as well as his failure to ventilate her airway. As the press ran with the story that fall, other patients who had been harmed by Dr. Anthony Pignataro began coming forward with their own horror stories. 20 staples across a stomach, a sponge left inside the body to rot, a chemical peel turned excruciating. By winter 1997, 13 women besides Sarah had allegations against Anthony. Among them was Terry Lamarty the last patient to experience Anthony's malpractice and make it out alive. That was enough for the DA to secure a search warrant. And while Anthony wasn't at his practice, investigators got inside. Like many patients before, they descended the basement steps and found an unequipped makeshift surgery. A single chair sat haphazardly at the center with a light to help Pignataro see during operations. There were few items connected to wires, very little sterilization equipment or emergency kits around. One might expect to find a similar setup at a stage play for an actor performing as a physician. For a real doctor, the scene practically screamed malpractice. And there was another red flag. All along the walls of Anthony's office, diplomas hung proudly in frames painting a picture of the perfect professional. But Pat and Chuck weren't so quick to trust them. They rang the institutions listed. Call after call, the same news came back. They hadn't given an Anthony Pignataro any such diploma. This single shocking truth knocked the entire investigation on its head. Not only had this guy killed an innocent woman by improperly medicating and caring for her, he'd screwed up on handfuls of other patients and without so much as an honest certification. As back alley doctors go, this guy was as fake as they come. But his farce had met its foil. And on January 27, 1998, Anthony was indicted before a grand jury on six counts manslaughter in the second degree, 
assault in the second degree, falsifying business records in the first degree, reckless endangerment in the second degree, criminal possession of a forged instrument in the third degree, and criminally negligent homicide. Though Anthony wanted to fight for his innocence, his attorneys told him that going to trial would likely lead to more prison time. They urged him to plead guilty. With his name on the line, Anthony wavered. It was clear to the public that he'd made mistakes as a doctor, but he wasn't sure he was willing to own up to what he'd done. Admitting where he'd been wrong had never been his game. Coming up, Anthony pounces on an unexpected victim. Now, back to the story. Throughout the spring of 1998, 39-year-old Anthony Pignataro faced a difficult decision. Accept a plea deal or go to trial on major charges, including the criminally negligent homicide of 26-year-old Sarah Smith. On June 8, 1998, he made up his mind. Anthony pleaded guilty, waiving any right to appeal his sentence and giving up his medical licenses. That wasn't exactly a huge sacrifice, given most of his credentials were fake, or at the very least exaggerated. Three months later, on August 4th, he was sentenced to six months in jail, five years probation, 250 community service hours, and a $2,500 fine. For killing a woman, that was almost nothing. And somehow, Anthony had the loyalty of his wife. While he had made some mistakes, Debbie still believed he was a good guy at heart, a lie she'd clung to for 20 years now. Debbie trusted that the latest obstacles would change their family for the better, even if they now made her the wife of a convicted felon. Maybe in her mind, some jail time might make him a reformed man and they could finally work on their marriage. So, when 40-year-old Anthony was discharged from prison on December 7, 1998, Debbie had hope. As Anthony sat on the couch watching videos of his son's junior high school football games or nurturing their gymnast daughter, he did appear to be renewed. For his community service hours, he decided to volunteer at a therapeutic riding center for people from underrepresented backgrounds and individuals with disabilities. This was the cherry on top of the new and improved Anthony, but it was merely another act. Just a week after he'd returned from jail, Debbie got a letter. In it, the news that Anthony had been having an affair. The relationship had started before he went to jail, and it was still happening. This wasn't the first time Anthony had cheated. In the past, Debbie had forgiven him, but she wasn't sure she could do the same this time. She held her tongue, biding her time, sorting through how she'd respond. On one hand, she wanted her children to continue living the lives they knew, and she didn't know if she could support them on her own. On the other, Anthony's behavior had once again shattered their marriage, even while Anthony claimed he was a changed man. 
As she pored over her options, Debbie wondered if there were other things her husband was hiding from her. On their bank statements, she soon found that Anthony was making regular $100 mystery withdrawals from their account. Desperate for answers, Debbie did more digging and found Anthony's mistress's home address. One day, in February 1999, she decided to pay a visit. But when she pulled up, she found their family Cadillac parked in the driveway. Upset, Debbie drove the car home, leaving her van for Anthony to find whenever he decided to head home. But that evening, Anthony didn't come home. Instead, he called his wife and tried to tell her it wasn't what it looked like. The excuse rang empty in Debbie's ears. Anthony had pushed her too far this time. She had all the locks changed on the house to ensure he couldn't come back unless he demonstrated a willingness to change. She also withdrew all the money from their joint account. Even worse, Anthony's mum found out about his affair and threatened to cut him off from his dad's estate if he left Debbie. Anthony didn't like the sound of that. So he did what he always did when he was in a pinch. He devised a scheme. For several months, he stayed away from his family's home. Though Debbie was desperate to know what he was up to, he wouldn't give her or the kids his number. Still, he visited at random in March of that year. In April, he began coming by more regularly. He also told her he'd like to get a job in the medical field a state away. And even though the terms of his plea bargain prohibited him from such work, he went for an interview anyway, leaving New York without permission. Debbie kept the secret. She had missed him. If he wanted to clean up his act, that was a good thing. Though Anthony didn't get the job. Still, it made Debbie feel safer to have Anthony around, especially after vandals started visiting their house in May, writing the words, killer, 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 on the patio door. What she didn't know was that Anthony was likely the one doing the defacing. And if so, it had the intended effect. Cornered by fear, Debbie was more lenient about letting Anthony spend the night. By June, Anthony was over regularly. But it was around this time that Debbie fell sick. She felt excruciating pain in her stomach, and while doctors suspected it might be pancreatitis, they couldn't be sure. Ultimately, Debbie was sent home from the hospital with more questions than answers. And as the summer heat rose, so did her mystery illness. She developed soreness and numbness all over her body and found it harder to remember things. Some days, she couldn't even make it out of bed. When that happened, her husband would bring her food. It never tasted right, though. A metallic flavor tainted almost everything she ate. As she grew weaker and weaker, Physicians racked their brains trying to figure out what was going on. But it wasn't until the start of August, when her condition took a turn for the worse, that one doctor wondered if Debbie had been poisoned. Though Debbie dismissed the theory, 
she allowed them to test her blood. The results came back shocking. A 24-hour collection of urine showed that Debbie's system contained 29,580 micrograms of arsenic per liter. Most people have between 5 and 20 micrograms per liter. Given the results of her urinalysis, it was a miracle that Debbie was alive. Or was it? Ingesting arsenic in small amounts over time produces all the symptoms Debbie experienced, and we can actually survive these minor exposures. These symptoms can be common with myriad other illnesses, making a diagnosis of arsenic poisoning initially very difficult. But there was no question about it. Debbie had been poisoned. The who would be a tougher question to solve, but it brought back two familiar characters from Debbie's past. Chuck Craven and Pat Finity, the DA's office investigators who'd run Anthony's investigation. On August 26th, they got permission to search her home and took a lock of her hair. The Strand soon revealed that Debbie's poisoning seemed to begin in June, right around the time Anthony had moved back in with his family. They flagged the finding as suspicious, but they needed more before they could leap at the former criminal. They needed his motive. That, too, proved accessible. After some digging, they learned about Anthony's latest affair and what a mess it had been. Then they found out that Anthony's mother had told him he'd lose his inheritance if he divorced Debbie. Next, they learned Debbie had a $100,000 life insurance policy and her husband was the beneficiary. As far as new beginnings with his mistress were concerned, it made more sense for Anthony to kill Debbie than to leave her. But it wasn't until an unexpected witness found them that Chuck and Pat were able to confirm their theory. A man who we'll call Adam had come forward, saying he'd spent time in jail with Anthony. Around that time, Anthony had started doing heroin, and after both of them got released, they still met sometimes. Adam remembered Anthony bringing up the subject of poison and how annoyed his wife was making him. He hated how constantly she checked on him. He even said that Debbie had to go. Though Adam knew what that meant, he didn't think Anthony was capable of murdering his own wife. When the news reports came out on Debbie's poisoning in August, he almost couldn't believe it. At the start of September, they also got a hold of Anthony's mistress, who confirmed a similar story. Meanwhile, Debbie had tried her very best to remain loyal to the man who'd poisoned her. She didn't want to believe he'd done it either. But then a family member revealed that Anthony was still actively involved in his affair. Finally, it seemed Debbie's unshakable devotion to her husband was shattered. She was convinced she had to let him go. Throughout the fall, Debbie remained in the hospital, undergoing extensive physical rehabilitation for the persisting numbness in her limbs. Although the majority of Debbie's symptoms were abating, her numbness persisted and worsened. 
Intestinal symptoms, like pain, nausea, and diarrhea, are usually temporary, and doctors often stop looking for causes after these symptoms resolve. Arsenic's toxic effects to the nerves, however, become irreversible after about one to four weeks of repeated exposure. This is a result of arsenic's ability to cause cellular death in the body's peripheral nerves. During her long days spent trying to regain mobility in her body, Debbie finally had time to consider how she'd like to move forward. It wouldn't be hard to get Anthony charged with her poisoning. The DA investigators Chuck and Pat now had substantial evidence as well as witness statements. And Anthony had broken his two major probation provisions, which said that he had to stay drug and alcohol free and couldn't leave the county without court consent. In the months following his release from jail, Anthony had been drinking tequila daily, and his friend Adam admitted they'd sometimes do heroin together. As for leaving Erie County, Anthony had crossed state lines without permission for a job interview and had even made plans to start a new life in Florida. On February 1st, 2000, 41-year-old Anthony was arrested. A month later, he was sentenced to 16 months to four years for violating his probation. A year later, in February 2001, he was sentenced to the maximum prison term of 15 years for attempting to poison his wife. Dr. Anthony Pignataro was ultimately convicted of several crimes, including attempted murder. We want to trust our doctors, but this doctor and countless others featured on medical murders have taught us that physicians are people too and not immune to the same human shortcomings. Patients, beware. A dirty basement office, discount fees for complicated procedures, surgical do-overs, and false credentials are red flags for white coats. Anthony Pignataro's behavior chipped away at those blind expectations we all want and need in our physicians. Anthony didn't deserve the time-honored adage of, trust me, I'm a doctor. A good lesson for all of us patients seeking help and comfort. Anthony tried to keep contact with his son while he was locked up, but the damage had already been done. Though Ralph did write his father, it was only to ask that he try and do right by their family for once. In December 2013, Anthony was released from his sentence early and followed his goal of moving to Florida. Apparently, he settled in the Palm Beach area and changed his name to Anthony Hote. Despite his multiple brushes with the law, it seems the back-alley doctor in him still lives on, as he most recently surfaced on an elderly care ad in 2019. Whether he's received necessary training for that role remains in question. As for the many he harmed in his decade masquerading as a doctor, that's not up for debate. His many victims in his time working as a fraudulent physician will forever underscore the tough lesson that when it comes to healthcare, legitimacy matters. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Alistair. 
For more information on Anthony Pignataro, among the many sources we used, we found Last Dance, Last Chance by Anne Rule extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, edited by Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Freddie Beckley. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 